Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Caroline, welcome to the War Room. Thank you, Ryan. It is wonderful to be here with you. Okay, let's get into it. You like to talk about controversial issues. Today, we're going to try to talk about them in a good way. Uh, that's what we try to do on this show is not talk about things uh, with all the fake outrage, which drives me crazy. Um, so maybe unpack a little bit about your career. What kind of got you interested in the topics that you discuss? Yeah, so I'm a professor of uh, critical theory and social justice at Occidental College, which is Obama's alma mater uh, for a few years in in Los Angeles. Um, And I grew up a super poor uh, kid in a rural part of Washington state, which is, um, you know, it's Trump country now, always has been uh, pretty conservative. And I was raised Pentecostal evangelical and I was homeschooled and pretty sheltered from the world and ended up, you know, going to college at a young age and kind of getting my mind blown by essentially being exposed to a lot of different ideas that I didn't agree with. And I landed in on a lot of issues and places that are pretty far away from my upbringing and my parents. Um, And I think maybe that gives me an appreciation for um, folks who think like my parents I don't know if that's helpful. That's <laughs> yeah, helpful. No, no, no. And so I have, um, I have the book over there. It's a big, thick book of um, uh, the best essays of critical theory, and I've got another critical theory uh, over here. The, the, the frustration I have about this topic, um, social justice, critical theory, or some of the women's issues that we're going to talk about, is how do we, or how do you, maybe is better. How do you go about talking about these? You said you want to hear the other perspective um, and understanding that. On, on these issues in particular, um, there is gray, there is definitely opposing views, and then there's kind of the extreme views that either side might have. And so there's, there's a big hodgepodge. So when, when you say, well, social justice or uh, gender rights or women's rights or whatever, it, it kind of everyone kind of imports what they think that means to these titles. And so having a discussion becomes very hard, it seems. So how, how do you navigate that? Ah, so I face this a lot in the classroom, right? As an educator, um, what we're really talking about is is power and privilege, right? We're talking about um, identity and who has value in, in our culture and who doesn't and how that translates into different levels of access and resources. And I think, you know, as a, a privileged white woman, I, I can say I think it's really easy to not recognize the ways in which, um, you know, white people tend to have privilege in our country. We have a long history of this. We've actually um, set up laws and rules and and in ways that have benefited us tremendously. Um, And you can say the same thing for really any system of power. Uh, Men have inherent privilege. You know, when they walk into a room, they are assumed to be a possessor of knowledge. They uh, just aren't challenged in the same ways, for example, as women are who are experts. I mean, we we can provide many examples, whether we're talking about race, gender, whether we're talking about ways in which we devalue people with disabilities, ways in which we devalue, uh, you know, queer people um, or fat people. And I'm not using that as an insult. I want to reclaim that term because it's just a descriptive term. I want to, you know, live in a world where body size 
isn't the basis for discrimination, right? Um, and I think what happens is when the, a couple things happen. One is when people hold positions of power or privilege and um, that topic comes up, they automatically feel attacked, um, which isn't the case, right? For what I can say, I mean, it's, it's not generally the case. People aren't blaming or attacking. We're actually talking about systems, not individual people. We're talking about ways in which we've set up systems to value people of certain identities more than people with other identities. And um, I think the kind of defensiveness immediately happens. And the second thing is, I think a lot of people who are pushing for these issues unnecessarily um, are alienating with the language they use, um, with the, you know, a kind of implicit moral judgment behind this. And so um, there's a disconnect, right? Uh, I think I really, truly believe that nobody thinks they're the villain in their own story. Now, I don't think people are good. We can have this whole conversation. I think our species is, we have to try really hard to be good because we're inherently pretty, uh, pretty selfish, but I don't think anyone's the villain in their own story. And so if you start from that position, a lot of the work I do, and I, I talk to people who, you know, I talk to groups of, of white supremacists. I talk to uh, incels. I, I talk to folks who have, who are very much dedicated to maintaining whether they put it in these terms or not, they're very dedicated to, to maintaining a system of power that benefits them. Hmm. Um, and I think the way you get around that um, is by talking about it um, as being a, a tool for understanding your place in the world and understanding yourself rather than being, you know, I, rather than being defensive, rather than being judged. Um, I think it's really important that people learn how power works, because if you don't know how power works, you're benefiting from it or you're being uh, or, or you're losing out in, in ways that may, might not quite make sense to you. So for me, it helps me navigate the world. Right. So I know I'm going to go into a college classroom and I'm not going to have the same gravitas as a male professor with my same you know, level of, of expertise, the same number of books published, et cetera. So I'm going to work a little bit harder. Why? Because I know I have that bias against me. Um, and so it, it becomes really empowering, I think to have that knowledge, um, even though, you know, a lot of folks find it threatening to even have the conversation. Okay. That's helpful. Um, so let me go back to something you said there. Um, and I've actually found out the book, it was a critical race theory, um, by Richard Delgado, uh, and Jean, I can't say names, Steph, but I can't wait. I'll link to the show notes. And in the book, they talk about some of the stuff that you're talking about since you brought, since you kind of went this, we kind of went here. So let me think about this. So would you say, that these principles that you're talking about would apply in China, but they would maybe be about the Han Chinese, which is like 90% of the population or in certain parts of Africa where maybe a, a certain ethnic group has the power. So one of the questions I've had is when we talk about this stuff, it, it's, it's a, it, the conversations that I've heard at least are very much America centric. And so you kind of have framed it, not, not you, but the conversations framed is well, it's a white versus black. It's a male versus female. And it's like, well, what would you say to other countries where the, the dynamics are, maybe there's a male, female thing, but, but the other dynamics are, are a lot different. Yeah, Ryan, that's such a good question. Yes. Power that, so identities, uh, what, who has value shifts depending upon time, depending upon location, mm. uh, country, ethnicity, subgroups within a country. Um, so I, I actually grapple with this quite a bit um, because I do a lot of media research as a data scientist, right? So, um, for example, in 
in South America uh, or South American countries, um, we've done a number of studies there on media representations, and you can't really talk about race because the racial categories are not the same as in the U.S. And so what we talk about, for example, is skin tone, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there are human beings can find endless ways to categorize and create hierarchies and essentially create power and oppression. We do it all the time. We do it in different ways. Um, another great example would be, you know, um, in uh, India, you can't use the same racial categories. We do a lot of studies in India. And so instead of looking at race, we're actually looking at caste systems. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also looking, again, at skin tone, because those are the ways in which um, Indian society ranks and, and creates hierarchies with human beings in terms of value. So you're absolutely right. Power functions and operates, I think, in similar ways over time and across place and, and nation state. Um, and humans really do have this endless capacity to set up hierarchies and, and use those hierarchies to place different value on different people. But those hierarchies shift over time. And I see this as an incredible moment where we can say, okay, so if we're constructing, meaning we're create, we're giving different aspects of human beings, different meaning, right? We're setting up hierarchies um, and they differ across, even at the same time, they differ so radically across country. That means we can change it. We can decide that we don't want these categories in hierarchies and we don't want this power and oppression. Um, so I see it as a really kind of liberating moment. And so how do you particularly um, go through thinking about, because there's a hierarchy, as you mentioned, in the power dynamic, but then there's also a moral hierarchy at play, right? So uh, moral questions that have to be answered, and then all moral questions aren't equal. Like there's certain morality things that we put on higher levels than others. So how do you try to navigate that? Because um, that that that's tied into this question of, of power, because if the system is a certain way, um, some might argue, well, morally, this is the right way to do it. So how would you combat that kind of narrative? Yeah, well, so I actually don't think um, oppression is ever moral in the sense that the moment at which you create hierarchies, right, the moment at which you label things and decide that certain things value more than others you've created some conditions for oppression. You've created dehumanization. And we know that, that oppressed people or people who have lower value, people who are dehumanized, um, experience more violence, for example, are more likely um, across the board uh, to have lower you know, life expectancy. So um, you know, whether we're talking about gender, race, sexuality, ability, body size, age, all of these systems, class that we've put in, that we as human beings have decided we're going to use um, to create, you know, give certain people value and other people less value. The moment at which we do that is a moment at which we create incredible human suffering. And I actually think that morality might be at the heart of a lot of what's wrong with human beings, because morality says that there's a right and a wrong. Um, and what it does is it puts certain people in a position to make that decision. And that is automatically a position of power. And so it also uh, kind of deputizes us to go around judging other people, mm -hmm. which, you know, I'm, I'm really quite far from my biblical roots, but I, I know is a big theme in the Bible, right? About not engaging in that behavior, except that morality. And I think a lot of, of religious practices and rituals 
do ask us to engage in judging others, I think a better basis for determining how we interact with others and how we think about these issues um, is pain and suffering, right? Reducing pain and suffering as you know, Jesus Christ says, if you've done this under the least of these, my friend, you have done it unto me, um, which really at the heart of that is empathy. So if we are empathetic toward other human beings, regardless of their identity, um, then I think we achieve a, a much higher kind of human existence than starting with morality and looking down upon and right and wrong. Help, help me understand, isn't that, though, a moral argument that you're making, saying that, that I think that this is the right way to, to view the world? Isn't that a moral argument as well, though? Well, is it a moral argument? Um, yes and no. So uh, I'm, I'm presenting a different paradigm rather than saying people who engage in this are terrible, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing a slightly different project, which is, um, you know, instead of critiquing the individuals engaged in morality, mm-hmm. I'm imagining a different world. Um, you know, the fancy academic speak is the political imaginary. Um, I open up this space in in my mind where I think about a world I want to live in. And I want to live in a world where human beings uh, achieve their full human potential. They thrive. They have the resources to do that. And they encounter a world uh, in which their value is just a given. Human beings have value. Um, And so I work backward from that. So I'm I'm not really interested in, in ever. So morality, obviously, we're engaging in, in value judgments about uh, individuals. Um, my project is much more at the systemic level and saying the ways that we've set up, you know, the ways that we've set up human practices or human institutions is the problem rather than the humans themselves. Okay. So let, let's focus in on the, on the gender aspect, because that is the main reason I want to get you on. So let's talk about that. Um, how does, how, what are your concerns um with where we are in 2023 about um, oppression or however, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but however you'd phrase it with the gender debate right now, because you mentioned earlier um, you might walk in uh, to, to a, to a college room and, and, and someone might say, well, you're, you're more or less qualified because you're a woman. Um, and, and so a, like how, how do you go about determining when we've come over that hump? So if you're saying that this is still going on, like how would you know when we've crossed that threshold to now things are equal? Um, Ah. And then B, how do you work through it to make that progress that you're trying to achieve? And I should say, I'm not playing the little violin for me, right? I'm I'm talking about one marginalized identity, which is being a woman. And, (laughs) you know, I'm a woman of, of means and I'm a white woman. So I just, just really quickly, intersectionality is the idea that when you have multiple uh, system and multiple identities um, that are traditionally marginalized, that those overlap and the impact of them becomes much greater. So for example, like a a woman of color walking into a classroom is going to have a much rougher time than I am. Um, And we know this, and this is the answer, uh, my answer to your question, Ryan, which is data. Um, I will, I know how progress is being made by tracking data. I don't rely on my anecdotal experience. I don't assume that my experience is what is happening in the world. Um, There's no way for me to know that just based upon my interactions. Um, It's not enough to talk to people about it. Those are anecdotes, right? And so I go to the data and the data is that, you know, women are in the US are 51% of the population, but they, we celebrate uh, great 
strides when we're, you know, 25% of Congress, which is a massive gap. Um, the wage gap, you know, Asian uh, women are still making um, 88 cents to a white man's dollar, uh, white women uh, around 81 cents, uh, black women around 65 cents, native women around 60 cents to a white man's dollar, and Latin women are around, you know, 51 cents. Uh, sense to a white man's dollar. Um, we have very high rates of sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace that don't just affect women, they affect men and gender non-conforming folks as well, but disproportionately affect women. Sexual violence disproportionately affects women. As a woman going to college, actually as anyone going to college, you have a higher uh, likelihood of uh, facing rape or sexual assault than if you don't go to college. And for women, it's it's about four times what it is for men. Um, and, you know, it, one in six um, women uh, globally is going to be raped or sexually assaulted over the course of her lifetime. One in three will face domestic violence. Um, these are, you know, so whether we're talking social, political, economic, um, CEOs, you know, 7%, are women of, of the top companies, um, only about 13% of women on, on Fortune 500 boards. So uh, the systems still haven't really shifted much, even though women, I think, have more of a presence in everyday American life through social media and being in the in public spaces and in the workforce. I think we imagine that we've made a lot more progress than we have. Okay, so... Yeah, I think that's the, the the tough thing to to measure though, is the relative progress because I'm assuming and I, I don't know the numbers you, you might, but a hundred years ago, those numbers would be nowhere, probably zero at the top level of Fortune 500 companies. You know, there, that's there, right, there, right. All those numbers would be zero, pretty right. much. Yep, you're right. And so, and so, there is there is a sense in which there is progress made. It might not be happening at the level that you're saying that that it should be happening. Um, but yeah, how do you measure if it is actually happening at the proper at the proper clip? Because I'm here, I don't have any basis. I'm just trying to digest these numbers. Going okay, um, these numbers um, are great. And there's other questions to ask. I don't I don't know. I'm curious what, what the numbers say about you know 51 percent of women uh, population. What percentage of women are interested in being in the workforce? And so wouldn't that that versus what percentage of men? are interested in being in the workforce because that might rebalance the numbers. So you might say, well, 40% of men will be in the workforce and I don't know, 20% of women, 30% of women, whatever it is. And so you might have a rebalancing. So the numbers would, would skew a little bit because just there's not as many women in the workforce as men. Maybe it's the same number. I don't know. So how do you, how do you measure those type of, um, the nuance, the nuance? Yeah. Yeah. Ryan. So, uh, it's important to note that, uh, 48% of the workforce is women at this point. So it's actually not a pipeline problem, meaning there aren't enough women in the pipeline or, or aren't enough women interested. In fact, women have exceeded men in terms of college degrees starting in 1984. Um, and in terms of the pace of progress, you know, I'm, I'm just impatient. I think <laughs> when, you know, anytime you have a system of power, whether it's, you know, I want, I want racism and policing to stop tomorrow. I want, you know, Black men are, are, are black men uh, and women uh, in that stat are three times more likely to be killed by police 
than, than white people and Latin people are twice as likely to be killed by police. And I look at those numbers, I'm like, well, that's not random, right? Um, I want that to change tomorrow. Um, I want social justice now uh, for for all marginalized groups. Um, but, you know, you do, and this, this takes my mind to a place that I didn't talk about because I'm talking about some very specific kind of social values of, of being in the public spaces and in the workforce. Mm. I think one of the primary ways that women continue to be devalued is that our work in the home is not uh, valued and it is not recognized as such. And if, you know, Chase Manhattan does this evaluation every year of what it would take for, you know, to compensate parents who are the primary caregiver, who's the chauffeur, who's the coach, um, who's the, you know, doing, doing homework, uh, who's preparing the meals, the chef, the the cook, right? The cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, that person makes about $140,000 a year if that work is compensated. Now, I think it's complicated around compensation, although sort of not. I, I would love to see, you know, women um, who are the primary caregivers in the United States um, make money for their work in the home, because I think if we did that, then we'd get more men into those roles and there's nothing inherently gendered about those roles. I think it's it's a great missed opportunity for men to engage in primary caretaking because we don't value it. And we in fact stigmatize it as not being manly. Um, and it's also this, you know, this great uh, loss of, um, you know, women who are bearing that load and are not being valued for doing it. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. My wife uh, is a stay-at-home mom. We have four kids. She does help me with some of my business stuff, but she primarily is the stay-at-home mom. And, and I always say she works 100 times harder than I do because, you know, she's getting ready to take one of my daughters to a birthday party. And there's a be-all-night deal. And so, you know, so, she, yeah, she she's working all, you know, never never takes off. And so um, th- there is there is a sense in which in this debate, um, putting the value by having a job diminishes what a real what, what another real job is, which is being a mom and a caregiver and and, and doing all that stuff. And so that, that that's a very hard arduous task that that um that some women you know choose to do. Some women uh, don't, of course. And so there, I don't know about the compensation, but um, so on the progress thing, um, this is something that I struggle with. So if if I were president tomorrow, um, I'm now eligible. I'm over 35. I'll be 38 this year, so you can vote for me. Um. I would want to end the war on drugs, right? And I would want to end the war on drugs. That's something that I would want to do. Um, now, with that being said, I'm not sure I would want to snap my fingers and do it by executive order tomorrow, but I'd want to do it. I mean, because the law of unintended consequences, um, even for what I would argue is a is a rightly held belief, is still at play. And so by ending the war on drugs, effectively, um, I've got to deal with all these issues of uh, releasing prisoners, ongoing court cases, cases that have maybe a, a low-level drug charge here, and they've got some kind of other violent offense here. And, and ha- so I don't want that to also stop the work. But as we think about kind of progress and, and dealing with issues, um, are you concerned that the law of unintended consequences could could have worse ramifications. So just to, let me ask a question, make sure I'm following. So the question is like, if we get rid of racism tomorrow, there would be unintended consequences. Yeah. What I'm saying is when you say get rid of racism, right? Obviously we don't want racism. I think we, I think we're on the same page there. Right. Yeah. Um, and in the book, um, 
uh, the Quick Race book, he talks about um, forms of racism like labor laws and stuff like that, um, that he would consider racism. Um, and, and I'm a libertarian, so I want the people to work that can have jobs. So I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem from the, from that standpoint. Um, I don't know when we say end racism, if you're talking about people's feelings toward other people. Yeah, let's get rid of that. I'm all there. But when we say, well, there's certain policies that we would get rid of, too. That's where I'd go. Oh, I don't know. Like, let's just pause here and think if this policy, um, I think the war on drugs obviously disproportionately impacts um, black and brown communities. Right. And so was the intent of that policy to be racist or not? We can have that debate, but that it definitely has that consequence. Uh, and so I want to get rid of that policy by doing so. There's a ton of money that's going to got to go somewhere. It's going to be reallocated or go away. Um, there's all these issues with the, with the judicial system. And so, I'm not saying get rid of racism is good. Is um, I want to preserve racism. I'm saying in this policy example, um, there's more than at stake than just ending the war on drugs, which I think is abomination. Does that make sense? Is that helpful? Yes. So, um, I mean, there's this is such a complex and excellent question, Ryan. Um, you're you're so good at kind of getting to the heart of this, right? Um, so there are different types. So in terms of systems of power, this is what I study, right? Um, there are different layers um, that are important. There's the individual level. So let me just use racism as an example. Sure. Uh, individual level racism, like using slurs or you know um, being awful to somebody because of their race. That's individual level kind of over racism. Then the next layer up are the social practices that are in place, right? Um, so racist practices. So um, it was so. For example, for a long time we had segregated drinking fountains, right? Um, today we have, you know, uh, certain spaces or parts of the country that are informally, you know, sundown towns where you don't want to be there after dark because, you know, you might face some sort of harassment if you're a person of color, specifically a black person. Right. Um, and then, so we have these beliefs and practices and they play out in different ways. Yes. Um, and then, um, or, or for example, like, and it's just a series of like microaggressions and Roxanne Gay talks about this as, um, you know, a black woman, um, there's always an assumption that she she's not flying first class and all of her interactions that happen uh, because she does fly first class. She's a very you know powerful, wealthy woman. And so um, but her her race and her gender right mediates is it, it gets in the way of people seeing her as that. And so they mistreat her. Um, and then so just a, a series of like social practices that are not laws. Um, but we all kind of know them, right? We could all rank races in terms of value, for example, because it's such common knowledge. And then there are the the actual laws and the institutions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, black people were three fifths of a human being in the Constitution. Um, and in fact, we we left a lot of folks out of the Constitution. They had such little value. We left them out of the Constitution and have spent the last 250 years trying to include them. Mm. Uh, and so uh, we've passed. So we've dropped some of the barriers. Uh, it used to be just landowning white men. So, you know, about four percent of the population could actually participate in our democracy uh, when when it first started. We extended the franchise over, you know, a century and a half. Um, and then we started to notice that the. Uh, a lot of uh, the laws were contributing to racism and sexism and uh, exclusion of people, um, even though they weren't in intending to. So, for example, the crack versus uh, cocaine laws were uh, giving, you know, black Americans uh, who are the primary users of crack cocaine um, 
over 100 times the sentence of white cocaine users. Um, so it, even though it's not written, it's the racism isn't written into the law, it ended up having very racialized racist effects. Sure. And so um, I actually think if we want to shift, this is a really long way of saying, if we want to shift our culture and we want to be effective, we actually have to start with our institutions and laws first, because we have baked inequality into them in ways that we're finally starting to wake up to and discover mm-hmm. now 250 years after establishing our democracy. Okay. Yeah. And, and so um, there's an argument and, and I haven't researched this, but there's an argument in, at least in that book that Brown versus board of education, I believe it was, was overturned because there's outside pressures in the U S cold war and they didn't want the external um, media to talk about the inherent racism in the U S. And so they, they they put pressure to, to overturn Brown versus Board of Education. Listeners can't see this. You're nodding. So do you do you agree with that? Have you? I, I don't I don't know. That's just the that's just the argument they put forth in the book. And so my my question is, um, so I read that and I, and I paused and I said, okay, it might be true. I, I have no idea. It's an interesting it's an interesting thing to, to go explore. I'm gonna go explore. Um, okay. In the argument in the book, at least that they were making was is that even this is to benefit uh, the white person in this case. And while I can see that argument, I also go that on some level that still is that still would be some sort of potential progress. Now they have there were some arguments in a different book about why um, inflation actually didn't really uh, kept people from moving from community to community. But so if you're saying, hey, we want to end the laws, how far do we go with which laws we think are that way? Because Part of the, the 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 where I struggle on the law front is assigning motivations to the law, right? So uh, th- this law could have been generally because people thought it was a good law. They weren't thinking about racism. Sometimes it was because they were being racist, of course. Um, so how do you go? Is it is it impact? Is it intent? Is it both? Who's who makes these determinations of how we uh, strike these laws from the books? Yeah, Ryan, great question. Um, so I so it's not intent, right? It's it's what actually happens in practice. Um, so whether or not a law appears neutral on its face, if it ends up uh, being implemented in a way that's not neutral, like racism in policing, right? Um, the laws in the books are race neutral, but the practice of it is, is not. And so then you tweak it. Mm. And so it's not as... So I actually don't think that most people intend to do uh to engage in a lot of um the activities that we engage in to uphold power and privilege i think what ends up happening is you know you're a white person born into a a society that values white people more than people of color and you simply go about your daily business and in many ways you end up reinforcing that or you are a man that is born into a culture that values men and what they do more than women and you just go about your daily business and you just engage in activities that are expected of you and you end up upholding those systems. So I think I don't think lawmakers necessarily are um, going in and intending things. So that can't be the basis, right? I'm really interested in outcomes. And it's um, so you you brought up Brown v. Board, right? So 1954, 1955, a set of court cases uh, that pushes for desegregation. And yes, is there evidence that we were we, meaning some of our political leaders, uh, were receiving pressure um, because of the the treatment of people of color, specifically Black people in the United States during that time? Yeah, I mean we were global hypocrites, so we were responding to that. 
And I think it, it's fine to have the complexity that it benefited, you know, white leadership. It also benefited, um, you know, black students and other students of color, although benefited. And, and this is maybe what you're talking about, Ryan, um, the way in which the law was implemented um, actually ended up shifting public opinion against desegregation. Uh, and so maybe the way in which it was done, not great, but here's the kicker. Now, f- over 50 years later, um, we are just as desegregated and, in fact, slightly more desegregated in uh, cer- certain areas of the country. But overall, we are we are more desegregated today than we were pre-Brown v. Board. And so it wasn't effective. Um, and I bring this up because maybe this is some of your underlying kind of critique, which is, how far can the government go, right? How far can policies go in actually doing this? And I'm a, I'm a, you know, I, I'm a firm believer. I moved a bit away from that. I'm a firm believer that actually media and public discourse uh, is as powerful or more powerful a tool to mm-hmm. achieving social justice than laws and policies. We, yeah, yeah. I think, I think, you know, we could talk about the the law part of it. I do think in this conversation that um, in the Brown v. Board example, um, one author, one uh, CRT author uh, notes that inflation kept community, uh, poor communities from being able to, you know, move up in the in the social rank. And so inflation is a is primarily a governmental problem. And so even in and so um, we can get to the Fed monetary policy and all that if we want to. But but, you know, um Inflation does disproportionately impact low-income community, communities, regardless of their color. It's just, it's just that's how it, you know, it, it's just going to impact them. And so, I'm sympathetic to that to that point, which is it was overturned for whatever reason. And then inflation, this other thing over here, um, um, and it's, I'm not I'm trying to simplify the argument to just inflation, but inflation was one of the factors that pre- prevented um, people to move into different communities. So, so I can hear that and go, hmm, yeah, I, I, can, I can see how how there's problems. And then we say, well, the next step is, is, you know, how do you think we figure out the best way? Because on the face value of, you know, you know, should people be racist, me and you on the same page, there's, there's no disagreement there. Um, on, on what laws we can change, I'm, I can tell you, I'm sure I'm a libertarian. We're probably going to disagree on what that means practically. How do we think about that from a perspective of, and this is, one of the things I hate these conversations on Fox or MSNBC or whatever, it is pitting two sides together and they just holler each other. One's a racist, one's a socialist, one's a this, one's a that. So how do we frame these discussions to say, okay, well, we both agree at the core level that you know, we don't want people to be racist. So we have that. How we push that into society, um, not everyone's going to agree. And so how do you have that conversation understanding that even all CRT proponents or whatever wouldn't agree on exactly how to execute that. So you're going to have a diverse opinion on how best to do it. So how do you have that conversation in a way that is productive? Because I do agree that these conversations are far more productive than you're going to get on Capitol Hill. Yes, unfortunately, right. These are the conversations that are happening behind closed doors, but not not in the public sphere. Um, you know, and I'm somebody who's who's led campaigns to change laws, uh, so I know intimately just how limited they are in terms mm-hmm. of making change. Because fundamentally, change is about shifting hearts and minds. So you can pass as many laws as you want against racism. You can say it's bad. You have to not do this. And mm-hmm. and certainly, I'm not diminishing like the power of, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, sure. the ban discrimination in the workplace. 
But at the end of the day, um, if people don't care about the issue, they're not going to change. And we see this with like, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings actually having a negative effect because people are defensive about it. Um, How do we have these conversations? Um, I actually think it might be a little impossible to truly have productive conversations around this. And I'm I'm pessimistic about it because I think that, that power doesn't like to give power up. So if I'm an entitled person, um, I might, I might nod my head about not wanting to engage in racism or uphold a system, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to do anything about it because I benefit from it. Right. If I'm the average person. So how do you get people to fundamentally care about other people and to, I mean, this whole, so I I think there's a lot of magical thinking on the left, right? That, oh, all, all we have to do is just talk about inequality and expose it. And then everyone will want to fix it. Mm. And it's just not how it works. People in positions of power, people who benefit from the current system are not going to give that up. In fact, they're going to dig their heels in. Um, And so, so how do you get around that? How do you get around um, you know, power, not wanting to give power up. I mean, I think you legislate against it. You say, look, you got to you got to show up as your best person in the workplace. I don't care how homophobic, transphobic, racist, sexist. I don't care who you are at home. You need to show up in the workplace and not not engage in activities that harm other human beings. Um, also, at the end of the day, how much do we want to go down moralizing about who human beings should be, you know, in certainly you know in 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 public spaces but but what sort of freedoms i i'm i'm probably pretty far along with you on government maybe not being the best arbiter of this um but getting back to the question about how we how we have these conversations um yeah like this i guess except i I, again pessimistic because i don't think power just gives itself up yeah well okay so uh, when when you say power, the first thing I think of is the fat cats in Washington D.C. who are just <laughs> them, the lobbyists. Like there was, there's this whole as we're recording this, the, the, it'll be out in a few days or a week, whatever it is. But the Chinese balloon thing is going on, right? Yeah. And, and there was a report that said that they were afraid to shoot it down. It's over Montana. They're afraid to shoot it down because of debris and might injure people. That only is said by someone who lives in Washington D.C. <laughs> there are. Miles and miles and miles and miles of empty country in the middle. Montana's where to shoot it down. Montana's sure. exactly where to shoot it down. And so, and so you you take that and you go, yeah, these people have no clue. Obviously, they have masks, but they just they don't. I don't. I don't think that's a real reason to be honest with you. But but if you just take it at face value, they have no clue what the world looks like. And I'll give you another example: COVID policies. Well, if you're in New York City versus where I'm at in Texas, which is pretty I mean. I could hit my neighbor over there with a rock, maybe, maybe over here, but across the street, like we're, we're pretty spread out. We're pretty spread out. It's not the same. It's just not the same. And so um, when you think about instituting laws, there are, it, we are, it's a big place. It's a really big place. And trying to get the one size fits all mentality to me is where it becomes quite hard to think about, well, how do you solve a problem in San Francisco? I don't know. I've been there once in my life. I was there for a day. It was foggy. We drove around and left. I mean, I don't know what's going on in San Francisco. Have no idea. And I'm not qualified to really speak to it on a ton of level. Um, just like someone from San Francisco probably isn't qualified to speak um, in various parts of Texas where it's rural and they don't know the the economy. So there is that sense of the, the one size fits all, I think, is where, um, where, where I have a problem 
Um, but then the power aspect, the power, we do deal with powerful people, but it's usually top down. It's usually not the average person. Now, I get what you're saying that they may have implicit power potentially, but the power really is bestowed from the top leaders and they're the ones who want to hold on to it, it seems. Oh, agreed. So different types of power, but kind of the same idea, right? There are people who have positions of power, formal power and authority. And then there are people with identities who belong to groups that have an awful lot of power when they walk into social, economic or other situations, right? Um, so again, thinking individual versus systemic, but I, I couldn't agree with you more about you know, local folks making decisions for themselves. I would love to live in a world where we had a living wage, uh, where, you know, people could really thrive and be creative and be inventive and entrepreneurial. I just, I think about, I want the government involved in that. I, I think about uh, all of the, you know, inventions and the medical innovations and, and the art and the human advancement that has been left behind because, you know, poor people don't have access to making that work. And we know that the biggest indicator of where you're going to end up socioeconomically, your, your income class, is where you start. And so that's, it's just not fair. Like you're born into that, right? And, and I, I want, I want human, human beings to thrive. So I want a living wage. That's what I want from the government uh, federally. Um, I also want, uh, and, and this is something you referred to earlier, um, I want the government to be a better backstop between uh, corporate corporations whose single goal is to make profit and they put that above other goals. And, and so they end up being super exploitive. I think human, we need protections against entities that fundamentally do not care about our well-being, but rather care about profit. And they might sort of care about our well-being, but they're entities that are not really humans. They're a, coll a collection of humans that ends up acting in ways that individual humans would not act. And so I, I want government to be a protection against corporate exploitation, whether that's, you know, don't pollute our waterways, our, our skies, um, whether or not it's, uh, you know, uh, defective products. I want the government in place as a protection against that. Now, of course, um, you know, we have the best government in Washington in DC that corporate money can buy. Mm -hmm. And so I understand, you know, that that's, that's a, more of a, a goal than a practice, but I think we need them there because I don't, I trust government officials and elected representatives who are 3000 miles away from me more than I trust a CEO of a corporation to care for my interests. Well, yeah. And so on that, just quick note, I would argue the reason I don't want the government in charge is because what happens is the government agency becomes the advocate for the citizen. Um, and we see this in Texas with oil spills or whatever. Um, what, and, and so you kind of know how to navigate that, that stream, which is government policy here do this, pay this fine, go on. Um, whereas if the landowner was able to retain that kind of power over the corporation, that would shift the balance of power back. So if you said, well, you know, these government agencies are, um, are, are somewhat effective potentially, but, but if there's a spill, the landowner, that should be who you're primarily concerned about, not the government agency, because now you've shifted the focus to the impacted party, to the non-impacted party, the government, the government, the guy at the EPA or whatever, he ain't impacted at all. Bob, he's impacted. And so who they, but who are they afraid of? They're afraid of the EPA. They're not afraid of Bob. And so uh, I would say that that power from that standpoint, giving to the person who's actually the injured party would be um, more appropriately done. So that would come from legislation, of course, uh, or ending some of these policies, but we don't have to get all that. That's, 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 a, that's a whole other rant for no doubt. I'll let you respond though. Go ahead. 
Yeah, Ryan. So that might work in a, in an I you know in specific situations, but I think the biggest ways in which corporations exploit us are through predatory pricing practices, um, and and they're global, right? So a landowner is not going to be able to hold a, a global entity accountable. That would be my thought. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and the <laughs> yes, agree. Okay. Um... I want to circle back around. We just got just a few minutes left here because this is one of the things I want to talk to you about. Um, you mentioned the sexual harassment in the workplace on college. Um, you've done some work on this. I'm going to link to your books in the show notes. Um, I, I did want to get your opinion um, on how we talk about the issue of consent because we've had some of these issues on the show about uh, rape or domestic violence or whatever. And to me, there's a big question that I'm not clear on. How do we think about the issue of consent? What does it look like? Who can consent? What age? And when does consent start and stop? Ha <laughs> Woo. Okay. So, you know, that's a year, year long discussion, but <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, so um, I think the ways in which we, we typically think about consent and legislate consent are really flawed. Right. Um, so let's just, there, there are a lot of uh, complexities here, but let's just deal with like heterosexual um, sexual activities. Right. So um the ways in which we uh, assign gender roles actually make it really difficult to have good consent or, or what I would consider to be consent because we set up men as like, we, we expect men to uh, demonstrate or perform their manhood based upon, you know, the sexual consumption of women essentially. Right. So we put a lot of pressure on them to have a lot of sexual partners and to be pushy about it. Right. In order to, to have those numbers. And then for, for women, we, uh, you know, we have this kind of Madonna war complex where we hold them to a, a different standard. Um, and so there, you're supposed to keep your numbers low essentially. Right. So you, you're supposed to act as a gatekeeper. Um, and so you put those two roles together in a heterosexual hookup and it's a recipe for disaster. And what ends up happening um, is uh, oftentimes, um, even if a woman has consented to having sex, it's unwanted sex. And what do I mean by that? So you have rape and sexual assault, which are you know absolutely not consensual. Then you have this big gray area uh, that is, uh, it, it's not a sexual violation, but it's unwanted, meaning, um, that you, you're you're actually kind of going along with it because you're also supposed to be passive, right? So even though you're supposed to be the gatekeeper, um, there's a lot of pressure to be passive in those scenarios. So uh, I think the ways in which we do our gender roles end up uh, leading to a lot of what I would call unwanted sex, a lot of what I would call bad sex, and then of course, a lot of rape and sexual assault. Um, and this is an epidemic and it's something we don't take seriously because, you know, for every 100 rapists, one is going to ever see a day inside a jail cell. And I've, you know, I work a lot with public survivors, Cosby survivors, uh, Weinstein survivors. Um, and it's, these are, you know, these are rare cases where some justice is meted out after many, many, many years. And then is it really justice like Cosby's, you know, living in his home because he made a backroom deal that wouldn't have flown with anybody else, uh, but he's a celebrity, right? So, um, even though he was found guilty on, on three counts with Dre Constan, the fact that, that we now have over, you know, 65 public survivors against Cosby, and I'm telling you, it's the tip of the iceberg, um, the only one was within the statute of limitation. So that would be an example of a law that is super sexist um, and ends up, you know, we, we have lots of laws and policies around rape 
that don't hold rapists accountable, which means, again, we don't take it seriously as a crime. Um, and I think if it happened, uh, if it happened more to men, we would take it more seriously. Now, one caveat to that, about 400,000 men are raped each year in the prison system. Mm -hmm. And we hold prisoners there. We give their lives so little value that we do not give a darn about that. Um, and it's a different dynamic than what I'm talking about in the broader society. But at the end of the day, getting back to consent, this is what I would like to see. First off, uh, I'd like to see, I think, a lot, you know, a lot more sex and a lot more pleasurable sex. And I say this because I think it's a great part of the human experience um, that we set up a lot of rules around which are kind of arbitrary and ridiculously gendered and end up leading to a lot of people not being happy with an experience that should be great. Um, and not making judgments on what people are doing in terms of sex, as long as it's consensual and you're not, you know, you're not harming anyone. And that would include right harm to children. Um, that would include obviously setting up laws to protect children who may not cognitively, you know, I, who not may not, who are certainly not cognitively ready for sexual interactions and to protect them from adults. That's not what I'm talking about here. But consent is, um, it's freely given. And uh, it's verbal. So I, I do think we do need to revise the ways we think about like, ooh, it's, it's a hot moment. No one's going to say anything. This kind of deprioritization of, of verbal communication during sex. I think the reason we need to do that is because we have an increasing number of human beings in the United States who are on the autism spectrum. I have members of my family who are on the autism spectrum. Uh, we're certainly seeing an, an increase in that in college, you know, of folks going to college. So a, and maybe it's, maybe it's a matter of us identifying it now better. Maybe it's always been this way. But whatever the reason is, um, a lot of folks in the autism spectrum can neither give nor receive nonverbal cues. And so we need to be verbal about it so that we, you know, our whatever definition of consent we have needs to include that so that we can, you know, truly consent to it. Also, I would love to get rid of these gender roles, right, where men are compulsory, having compulsory, men are feeling the pressure to have sex and doing it, right? And women um, are kind of doing it, but they're reluctant about it. It's going to affect their, you know, their reputation. I want us to get rid of all of that so that we can have awesome human sexual encounters. Well, I am pro death penalty for rapists. So I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty hardcore on, on what should happen to rapists. The threshold for proving rape, I would obviously as a pro death penalty advocate, I would be, it's pretty high, but still um, I think that death, that if you rape someone, that is a, a uh, capital punishment. So I take it as seriously as I can um, from that standpoint. Um, you know, it, it, and it's a topic that um, to your point, there is this, um sexualization that's going on and and so you have these 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 things to where it feels like society doesn't really draw boundaries but they draw boundaries and so it's not really clear on who's supposed to be doing what and and so then you 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 read these stories and it, and it makes it very confusing because like well wait, what 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 happened here and and what 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 were the rules how how was supposed someone supposed to know and, and there's plenty of cases obviously where it's quite clear there's other cases you go, well, I, don't, I don't, you know, how do you, how do you pick through this? And so it's a topic that I think um, the issue of consent um, um, does need to be discussed more just because it is, it is a, it's something we see in the news quite often now. Yeah. Ryan, to, to draw the link between sexual objectification and rape. Um, so we live in a society that normalizes the sexual objectification of girls and women. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we are, uh, you know, we, uh, to quote Sarah Mernon, we raise our little boys to view their bodies as these tools to master their environment. We raise little girls to view their bodies as projects to work on. And how are we working on them? We're trying to, we are taught that our value comes from our bodies. So we try to maximize the value by being really valuable sex objects. And we are surrounded by a culture that tells us that that's our value. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the problem, of course, with objectification is it takes a human being and it makes them into an object. And in this case, a sexual object. And, and I say this a lot, but sexual objects act sorry, sexual subjects act and sexual objects are acted upon. So we set up men to be sexual subjects, to be consuming women as objects in a way that is inherently dehumanizing, right? So viewing them as a means to your own pleasure. And so we raise little boys in this, what I would call a rape culture, right? Where we we ask them to be sexual subjects and treat women as sexual objects. And then they become 18 years old. And all of a sudden we expect them to behave well toward women. It, it just doesn't work that way. And I'm not taking responsibility away from men and, and, and for rape, right? Um, men are the primary rapists of women, men and gender non-conforming folks. I mean, the vast majority, almost 99%, right? in, in all of this, um, for all of these target groups. So I, I don't want to shift responsibility, but I also want to understand the systems that create this behavior. Why is it that men feel entitled to women's bodies? Why is it that men view women as sex objects? Why is it that men, some men, uh, view women as instrumental to their own sexual pleasure and not ends unto themselves? So they're means instead of ends. I think we need to fundamentally shift that. Um, our way of thinking around that. And yes, it would start with us addressing the widespread and normalization of the objectification of girls and women. Okay. Um, we are up against the clock, but we feel like we could go over a few more hours. Um, first off, thank you so much for coming on. Um, uh, I, I think we had a respectful conversation. Um, hopefully the listeners got something out of this. I learned a lot. Um, and so I really appreciate you coming on and uh, talking to these issues in such a um frank and respectful manner so thank you so much we're gonna link to your twitter your website your books anywhere else you want us to send people to you know ryan i have a new book coming out called the sexy lie that actually looks at the subjectification problem and i think you had asked about coming together on these issues um it's a book that will be enjoyed well quote unquote it will be embraced by left right and center so um thank you for sharing that and you are incredible this is a great conversation Okay. When the book comes out, we'd love to get you back on. We could unpack that then have another great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ryan. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.